Chapter Twenty Eight, Part Four of In the School Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the School Room by John S. Hart, Chapter Twenty Eight, Part Four. Counsels to a pupil entering a normal school. You have entered upon a new and untried path, as one having been often over this way, and well acquainted with the features of the country before you, its lights and shadows, its roses and its thorns, its safe walks and its hidden pitfalls. I desire to talk with you a while before you enter upon the untried scene. First, first of all let me say to you, we give you a most hearty welcome. We are glad to see you here, and we tender to you in advance a warm and ready sympathy in the many little worries, annoyances, and discouragements that surely await you. For myself, I may truly say that outside of my own home, I have no greater happiness than to be among my pupils, and few things could pain me more than to believe that anyone who have been for any considerable time my pupil would not almost unconsciously claim me as a friend and it's an unceasing wellspring of joy for me to know that among your companions are many who, in time of trouble or difficulty or anxiety of any kind, would come to the principal of the school, as sure of sympathy as if going to their own mother. This freedom of intercourse between teachers and their pupils, this mutual exchange of confidence on one side and of sympathy on the other, is a source of good and a source of pleasure which neither you nor we, my young friend, can afford to forego. And if in the expression of this thought I have indulged in a rather unseemly use of the first person singular, it's not because I would claim for myself anything peculiar in this matter, but because from my years and my position I can perhaps, better than my associates, afford to speak out thus the inward promptings of the heart. We all give you the right hand of fellowship, and trust it will not be many weeks, or days even, before you shall feel that you have here a home as well as a school, friends as well as teachers. Second, a very common feeling at the beginning of a course of study is a feeling of discouragement. Nearly all the studies are new, and you enter upon each with fresh eagerness. Now it's in the nature of every study while it's new, to seem boundless. Under the guiding hand of a skillful teacher, its limits and capabilities are stretched out in one direction and another, interminable vistas spread out in the distance, and portentous difficulties rise up before the imagination until the mind is bewildered. There is not one of the formidable lists of studies before you that might not of itself so great or its capabilities occupy your whole time. When you find yourself called to grapple at once with four or five such studies, to measure yourself with competitors, many of whom have had opportunities of preparation greatly superior to your own, and in the presence of teachers to whom the whole subject is as familiar and as plain as the alphabet, and when, in addition, the methods of recitation are the, for the most part new and strange. You are very apt to become discouraged, to feel that you shall never learn to recite in the manner required, that you can never master the difficulties before you. This feeling arises most frequently in the best class of minds, those most conscientious in regard to duty and most capable of comprehending the 
full length and breadth and depth of a subject. The shallow and the trifling are never troubled with the kind of difficulties now under consideration. I address myself to you, my young friend, because I know you have come here with an earnest purpose, with a mind acute enough to see something of the vast work before you, and I say to you, as one who has had large experience in conducting other pilgrims over the same track, never lose heart. Difficulties which now seem unsurmountable will gradually disappear. Subjects which now seem impenetrable will soon lighten up. Did you never enter a room in the dark? At first the apartment is a universal blank. After a while, as your eyes become adjusted to the place, one article after another of the furniture becomes outlined to the vision, until at length, especially if approaching day lends some additional rays of light, the whole scene stands out perfectly defined. So it's in entering upon a new study. Many a passage in it will seem to you at first a worse than Sabonian bog, a cave of impenetrable and undistinguishable darkness. But draw not back, look steadily on. Light will come in time. Your power of seeing will, with every new trial, receive adjustment and growth, and you will in the end see with full and open vision where now you have only dim glimpses and guesses. Do not be discouraged, therefore, if at first you fail, or seem to yourself to fail, in almost every recitation you undertake. What seems impossible today will be only next to impossible tomorrow, and only very difficult the day after. Your failures are often only the proofs that you have a glimpse, at least, of something below the surface of things. A discouraged pupil is never a source of anxiety to me. It's only the self-confident and overwearing that are hopeless. Third, I have spoken of recitations. Let me urge you to form some definite idea of what a recitation is and what kind of a recitation you, as a pupil of a normal school, should aim to make. And first of all, on this point, let me say, the mere answering of questions, and especially the mere response of yes and no to questions, is not reciting. Assuredly not such reciting as is to fit you for the office of a teacher. And in the next place, let me say, repeating verbatim the words of the book is not the method of recitation at which you should aim. I do not agree with those who would dissuade you entirely from cultivating the faculty and enriching the stores of memory. Not only memory in its general exercise, but a purely verbal memory is important. In your lessons are many things, rules, definitions and so forth that should be learned with the most literal exactness and should be so fixed in the memory that they will come at your bidding in any place at any moment. There are, too, in some of your books, passages from noble authors which furnish food and nourishment to the soul, and which the mind craves in the very form and lineaments of their birth passages, which are like nuggets of virgin gold, or coins from the mint of some great sovereign in the realms of thought. They form a part of your wealth, and you want them, neither clipped nor defaced, nor alloyed, but with every word and point exactly as it came from the hand of the master. These precious gems of thought, the garnered wealth of the ages, will not be neglected by anyone who is wise. Treasure up in your intellectual storehouse as many of them as you can possibly compass, only with this proviso. Be careful to select for this purpose the very best out of the great abundance that's before you. 
and make thorough work in what you do attempt to commit to memory. The act of memorizing will at once strengthen the faculty of memory itself and will enrich you otherwise. By all means, therefore, learn by heart the leading definitions and rules of your textbooks and choice passages from all famous authors. But do not attempt in this way to commit to memory or to recite verbatim the pages of your history, geography, rhetoric, and so forth. Such a practice would be a most unwise waste of your time and would cause a weakening rather than a strengthening of your faculties. Let me tell you exactly what I mean by reciting. Your teacher goes to the board and, chalk in hand, explains to the class some point which they seem not to have apprehended. That's my idea of reciting. First get thorough possession of the thoughts or facts of the lesson, and then imagining the class and the teacher to be ignorant of the subject, explain it to them just as you will expect to do when the time comes that you will have a class of your own to instruct. It will aid you in preparing thus to recite a lesson. If in your rooms you will go over it aloud to each other, you and your roommate taking alternate portions, such a method of preparation will doubtless require some time, but one lesson so prepared will be worth more to you than a whole week of study conducted in the ordinary manner. Remember that in a normal school, your object is not merely to get knowledge, but to learn how to communicate what you've learned. First then, go over a topic till you are sure you understand it. Then go over it again and again until you can recite readily and perfectly every part of it in its order. Then practice yourself in telling it in your own words, aloud, if possible, to somebody else, until you can make the narration or explanation continuously, from beginning to end and without the possibility of being thrown out or confused by any amount of interruptions. Then, at length, are you prepared to recite. Is this standard of recitation too high? Is it not what every one of your teachers does daily, and what you yourself will have to do the very first time you take your position as a teacher of others? Fourth, this leads me by a natural transition of the subject of study. You need to learn how to study as much as you need to learn how to recite. Endeavor then to get some definite idea in your mind of what it is really to study. Mere reading is not study. Muttering the words over in a low, gurgling tone, or letting them glide in a soft, half-audible ripple upon your lips is not study. Going over the lesson in a listless, dreamy way, one eye on the book, and one eye ready for whatever is going on in other parts of the room is not study. Study is work. Study is agony. The whole soul must be roused, as every energy put forth, with a fixed rapt attention like that of a man struggling with a giant. Study, worthy of the name, forgets for the time everything else, excludes everything else, is incapable of being diverted by anything else, the whole internal and external man being bent upon making just one thing its own. Such study, of course, soon exhausts the energies. It cannot be long protracted, nor need it be protracted. Take rest in the season of rest, but when you study, study with all your might. Throw your whole soul into it. One hour of such study accomplishes more than whole days of listless poring over books. And remember, you cannot study in this manner by merely willing to do it. It's an art requiring training and practice, and thorough mental discipline. You might as well, on seeing the writing master executing those marvels of penmanship, 
the drawing teacher with deft fingers limning with ease forms of grace and beauty resolve to go forthwith to the board and do the same thing as expect by a mere sick volow to become a student you are here to learn how to study and the art will come to you only by slow progress and after many trials give up the illusion that absolute seclusion and silence are necessary to study i do not say that they are not at times desirable but they do not of themselves generate earnest thought the vacant mind that has not yet learned to think is when thus left to solitude and stillness quite as likely to go a wool gathering or to fall asleep as to wrestle with some hard uninviting train of thought the appliances and the invitations to mental application if we have really learned to study must be mainly in ourselves not in our surroundings besides the greater part of the actual thinking and study that has to be done by those in professional life that will have to be done by you when you enter upon the practice of your profession as a teacher must be done in circumstances not of your own choosing just as time and opportunity may offer by snatches and at odd intervals and often in the midst of distracting sights and sounds i venture to say that three-fourths of the graduates of this school who are now teaching have no opportunity for daily study and preparation for the duties of the schoolroom except that afforded by a seat in the evening in the common sitting-room of the family surrounded by children that are not always models of behavior and within sight and hearing of all the petty details of household life it is not therefore in itself undesirable that a part of, at least of your study at school should be performed in a common room where there are some temptations to be resisted some distractions to be ignored acquiring the ability to study without distraction in the presence of others and in the midst even of confusion and noise is as important to you as is the learning how to think aloud in the presence of a class which i have defined to be the true nature of a recitation the ability to study and the ability to recite are intimately correlated and the symptoms of both are unmistakably to the practised eye and ear i know just as well by a glance of the eye on entering a study room what pupils are making intellectual growth as i do on entering the classroom and listening to the recitations one might as well feign to be in, in a fever as to feign study nothing but the thing itself can assume its appearance fifth I approach my next subject of remark with some hesitation yet on no point in the whole theory of mental action have i a more fixed and assured conviction perhaps i may explain my meaning better if i introduce it with one or two comparisons action of every kind mental or material is to be aided or accelerated if at all by forces of the same kind with, with the primary force if a certain amount of weight ever the poise will not make the scale kick the beam we may produce the effect by laying on the requisite number of additional pounds by adding force of the same kind with the original if the flame of one candle does not produce the illumination required for a particular effort the addition of a second or a third will if we wish to increase the speed of a locomotive we do not whistle to it or whip it or say get up we add steam if on the other hand we wish our horse to travel faster we use a motive address to his nature 
we appeal to his generosity, his pride, or his fear. So mental action is influenced and induced by forces of the same nature with his self. One mind influences powerfully another mind, working upon us often, too, by mysterious influences that elude analysis. The influence of mind upon mind, other things being equal, is in proportion to the degree of perfection in which these three conditions exist, to wit, the fullness of accord and sympathy within the minds that are brought into contact, the closeness of the contact, the greatness and power of the influencing and controlling mind. These three points hardly need explanation or argument. Nothing is more obvious than that a mind fully in sympathy with another does by that very circumstance exercise an increased mental power on that other. In like manner, we all feel daily how our minds are lifted up, enlarged, enlightened, strengthened by intercourse with one of powerful intellect, and how often have we felt when ourselves wishing to influence anyone, particularly when wishing to influence one much younger and weaker than ourselves then we might accomplish our ends the better. If we could only know certainly and exactly what he was thinking, if we could as it were actually get into the chamber of his soul, this indeed we can never do. We think sometimes that we come very near to each other, but after all we never touch. Between my mind and yours, between yours and that of the most intimate friend you have in the world, there is a barrier high as heaven, deep as hell, impenetrable as adamant. Thus far we can come and no farther. We can never enter into the soul of any human being. No human being can ever enter into ours. Yet, my dear pupil, did it never occur to you that there in one mind, and that a mind of infinitely great and transcendent power, to which there is no other such barrier, and that this transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful mind is continually in direct contact with the very essence of your mind? Can I influence your thinking faculties, and cannot the, the infinite God who made those faculties? Can he who gave our bodies all their power of growth and strength not give growth and strength to our minds? I do not profess to understand how the divine mind acts upon the human mind. I cannot always understand even how one human mind acts upon another, but of the fact I make no more question that I do of the powers of flame, of steam, or of gravitation. And, as one set here to guide you in your mental progress, in all sober earnestness, I exhort you devoutly to invoke the aid of Holy Ghost in the promotion of your studies, not merely to help you to use your acquisitions rightly for His honor and the good of your kind, but to help you in making those acquisitions if you would rise superior to discouragement, if you would acquire that mental discipline which is to enable you to study and to recite and to teach in the very best and highest manner, pray. Call mightily upon God, the Holy Ghost, who is after all the great educator and teacher of the human race. Carry your feeble lamp to the great fountain of light and radiance. Put your heart into full accord and sympathy with that of your dear elder brother. Wrestle mightily with God in secret, as one that feels the burden of a great want. Thus, my dear pupil, will you best fit yourself for the duties of a student and of a teacher. For believe me, 
there is sound philosophy as well as religion in the utterance of the wise man. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Surely that man is a fool, who, in cultivating mind, whether his own or that of another, neglects to invoke the aid of the infinite mind. End of chapter 28, part 4